I'm Paul Miller. I'm at the University of Birmingham as a Marie Curie Fellow right now. I'm also an uh, Associate Professor of History at McDaniel College in the U.S. And the title of my talk is The Sa Sandwich That Sabotaged Civilization. So the image that you're looking at is a very familiar one to all of us. Many of us first saw it in our school textbooks or local newspapers whenever World War I was on the lesson plan. It's been on book covers and album covers and appeared in serious works of scholarship and university textbooks and in museums and children's books. And today you can find it all over the internet. It is, one could say, iconic. Um, and as everyone knows, and nearly all of these sources confirm, it's the arrest of Gavrilo Princip after he assassinated the Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo on June 28, 1914. Or is it? On the 10th anniversary of the Sarajevo assassination, one Ferdo Bear recognized himself in the image and uh, published an article shortly thereafter in which he uh, described his surprise at seeing the picture and seeing himself uh, being described as actually as the assassin and he talked in the, in the article about the chaotic street scene that followed the assassination. Uh, Ferdo Bear betrayed no doubt that he was the Bosnian being arrested above all because Gavrilo Princip was a much smaller man and anyone who knew them could see that. Surprisingly and saliently, there's never been any disagreement on this score. Upon closer inspection, it's clear that the faltering man in the image cannot possibly be the familiar uh, assassin, as virtually every specialist apprised of the story uh, averse. Uh, however, not every, and I should say, not every scholarly source today or every source today that uses the image identifies the arrested man as the real assassin. Several scholarly works have since made the correction, but most do still, including prestigious publications like New York Times, Smithsonian Magazine, just to name some recent ones, Mark Mazower, a famous 20th century historian, the cover of the, one of his books, and you can go on and on. And, and the fact is, and I'm sure for the centenary, we will again see this image being identified as the arrest of Gavrilo Princip. So that fact seems to beg a rather heretical question for an historian. Does it matter? After all, Gavrilo Princip was drubbed and dragged off to prison at about the same time, and he probably looked no worse for the wear. What this image does, then, is to contest the tension between history and memory, such that what we think we see shapes what we think we know about the past, even if what we remember seeing is not, in fact, factual. The literary theorist Roland uh, Barthes put it better, quote, whatever it grants to vision and whatever its manner, a photograph is always invisible. It is not it that we see. Well, Bart was not arguing that what we do see in, a, in an image is whatever we want to, but rather that its referential power is often greater than the mere photographic image itself. And Susan Sontag has made a very similar point in her book re regarding the pain of others, in which she wrote that such widely recognizable photographs have become, quote, a constituent part of what a society chooses to think about or declares that has, it has chosen to think about when it processes past events. And think of all the iconic images, say, of World War II, of Vietnam War, that we, we recognize right away. This becomes part of our collective memory, and in the case of the arrest, so to say, photo, part of our collective memory of the Sarajevo assassination. Well, I'd like to suggest here that photographs and other familiar formats for thinking about the past constitute what we can call memory, and that these memories are assimilated 
collectively. That is, uh, as part of structures of shared concerns, values, experiences, whether they're shared with family or community or nation, different uh, collective levels in which they may, uh, the memory may be shared. And that history and memory play off of each other in similar ways that an image and the emotion that it evokes in us, that it stirs in us, do. One being a kind of approximation of reality, the other representing what we, in our collective communal context, actually take from that, uh, that image, that memory, that source. So it seems important for me to put this down at the beginning because uh, it's no longer very a very disputed point, actually. But with the emergence of modernity in the 19th century, many thinkers began to stress that there was a great schism between history and memory. Unlike in earlier periods where history was often passed down as memory, uh, traditional forms of narrating the past uh, invariably conflated history and memory in earlier times. History with modernity in the 19th, 20th century came to stand for, quote, an ideal of disinterested objectivity, while memory was always partial and uh, specific to the community that was actually doing the uh, remembering. More recently, in a pioneering work in the still quite young field of memory studies, uh, famous historian Pierre Nora uh, wrote, quote, memory is always suspect in the eyes of history whose true mission is to demolish it and to repress it. In other words, to correct uh, memory, to remove its sacred context. Uh, and uh, so to divest the arrest photo of its actual referential relevance Maybe it's not quite the same as exploding a national myth or uncovering one of the many conspiracy theories about the Sarajevo assassination, uh, but its blatant incorrectness and ubiquity uh, perhaps may give us a chance to challenge this history-memory dichotomy in the process of exploring some other more pertinent uh, or puzzling ways of remembering the event that, as the cliché contends, set off the war that destroyed the world. For the fact is that if it were not for the unforetold global fallout from Franz Ferdinand's fatality, then the arrest photo would hardly matter to anyone anyway. Indeed, the Archduke's death would merely have joined a long and lugubrious list of important political assassinations that marked this anarchic age of revolutionary idealism. Rather than representing the shots that shook the world, Princip's exploit would have become another forgetful footnote in world history. And therein lies the myth that has made the Sarajevo murder, murder so immensely mythic and memorable. Its causal and for many inevitable culmination in the First World War with all that conflict's uh, consequences from the demise of empires to the rise of despots. Uh, except for Sarajevo, news articles around the world and across the 20th century assert nine million men would not have been mowed down. Europe's economic golden age would have gone on. Dialogue on women's rights would never have been deferred, etc., etc. Quote, two Serbian assassinations and an American massacre, the Chicago Tribune reads. The London Times in 1974 headlines its obligatory anniversary article, quote, when a teenager with a gun sent the world to war. And who hasn't heard about the pistol that pulverized history, or the auto that made the wrong turn and altered history, or even the sofa on which one could lay the 20th century? That is, the sofa on which Franz Ferdinand died and which was bought for a tidy sum uh, by the Austrian government in the 1990s.
Well, the man who made that purchase, a guy named Dr. Manfred Rauchensteiner, uh, did so as the director of the Austrian Museum of Military History which also has on exhibit the Archduke's bloodstained tunic, uh, the auto itself, other memorabilia associated with the, assass excuse me, the assassination. Rauchensteiner is also an accomplished historian, and he reminds us in one of his books that, quote, the murder of Archduke Franz Ferdinand did not trigger a war, but rather a European crisis, end quote. And that crisis, it's crucial to recall, could well have been resolved without global conflagration as far graver crises were earlier in the era. So why the Sarajevo Room in Austria's eminent military history museum? Why not instead, instead stress at the other great tourist stop in Vienna, Schönbrunn Palace, that without the signature of the much-praised and peace-loving Kaiser Franz Josef, there would have been no Austro-Hungarian assault on Serbia, response from Russia, German invasion of France, British indignation at the breach of Belgian neutrality, and so on through the nine million dead men that are so many are so quick to hang on Princip's pistol shots. Is there, in fact, enough space in public memory to include the failings and foibles of those leaders truly at fault for the war? Or is it just easier to proclaim Gavrilo Princip, quote, the most important person in the 20th century, end quote, as several popular history surveys do, and assume that events followed a preordained path or that war was inevitable anyway? Well, these questions comprise the connective threads between history and memory. If all history did not hinge on one teenage Bosnian hitman, then why is it remembered and, invoke it and evoked as such in so many contrasting forms of popular representation? Why, in other words, are we so compelled to confuse the arrested man with the real assassin rather than the more peripheral historical personage he really was? And even if that famous pho photograph was no more than a case of mistaken identity, which once propagated became almost impossible to impede, it's barely challenged, persistent, makes it, like most memory, seem uh, less haphazard and thus more mythical. Likewise, one might ask about all sorts of examples, uh, like why would one writer portray Gavrilo Princip peeing in his pants as he waits for the Archduke Franz Ferdinand to arrive? Through a, and there's many other examples one could draw upon. Through a variety of media, including literature and film, ceremony and song, stone and cement, in other words, memorials, uh, the Sarajevo assassination has been translated from an act of history into an aspect of memory. And the question that commands our attention thus is, what can these varying and ongoing constructions of mythic versions of this momentous past possibly mean? Of course, each rendering has its own specific connotation and context, both for the, the creator, the author, and the reader or observer alike. That's what literary theory tells us, uh, that how we interpret these things is a much a matter of our own perspective. However, uniting them is the very thing that makes the assassination so intriguing. The sense, however suspect, that Sarajevo itself was the turning point in world history thus exemplifying a, what Pierre Nora also calls a founding event or a spectacular event, one, quote, on which posterity retrospectively confers the greatness of origins, the solemnity of inaugural ruptures. Thus it becomes the assassination as an event, a lieu de mémoire, a site of memory. 
There's also the site of the assassination, which is a physical site, but there's also a site as an act, an event in history, right? This inaugural spectacular event. Uh, and um, so, so um, because in our case, the act, the act itself, which occupies the space in popular imagination, just like the bloodstained tunic is preserved under glass, and just like Princip's footprints were once impressed in the pavement where he supposedly stood, or just as one could add, the comedian makes us laugh every time he explains, quote, Franz Ferdinand found alive, World War I, a mistake, end quote. Well, the wor First World War was clearly no laughing manner, so why do we find it so funny when Private Baldrick blusters that the war began when a bloke called Archie Duke shot an ostrich because he was hungry? In the British TV series, Black Adder goes forth. For some historians, Baldrick's botched version of the Sarajevo assassination reflects popular opinion that the issues at stake did not justify the bloodbath that ensued. Uh, much as in their response to the uh, musical, Oh, What a Lovely War, they feel obliged to remind viewers that it was German militarism which drove the July 1914 drama to its deadly destiny. Well, that was the battle cry for the Entente once the Boche crossed the Belgian border. But for most blokes in Britain and the rest of Europe, the news from Bosnia was digested with about as much nonchalance as P.J. Woodhouse's inimitable Mr. Jeeves delivered it to his foppish master when asked what was in the papers that day. Quote, some slight friction threatening in the Balkans, otherwise nothing. After all, there was home rule in Ireland to contend with. In France, they had the affair of Madame Caillot. One American newspaper put it, there, there were already all, enough Austrian archdukes to make up for Franz Ferdinand's loss. The assassination may have made front page news around the world. It may have more recently stirred some sober concern from Lord Grantham on Downton Abbey. But in Vienna, Franz Ferdinand's funeral was treated as third class. So which version of history is most relevant here? The one that teaches us there was nothing silly about Sarajevo since Europe was divided into armed camps and Imperial Germany had been planning war since at least 1912. Or rather the rendering which reminds us that neither was there anything predestined about the assassination and few at the time actually predicted it would precipitate war. In this case one could do little better than to cite the military historian John Keegan who called the conflict in the first paragraph of his study of World War I unnecessary, since at any time in the five weeks following the Sarajevo assassination, quote, the train of events that led to its outbreak might have been broken had prudence and common goodwill found a voice, end quote. Or perhaps, if you want a contemporary, there's Sir Arthur Nicholson, who was the British ambassador in St. Petersburg, who wrote a memo shortly after the assassination in which the following citation appeared. The tragedy which has just taken place in Sarajevo will not, I trust, lead to further complication." End quote. Well, fortunately, we don't have to choose our history. Both versions make valid claims on our understanding of the Great War's origins and importance. I'm not trying to foist one version on you in other words. Uh, memory, conversely, is concerned more with construing and narrating the past such that we feel its impact in the present, even if that entails taking liberties with the truth. So consider the sandwich that sabotaged civilization. According to this legend, which dates only to 2003, the seven conspirators called off their effort after one of them threw a bomb and the bomb missed, missed its mark, and Franz Ferdinand emerged unscathed. 
Princip, understandably starving from stalking the Archduke in the hot summer sun all morning, headed to Moritz Schiller's delicatessen for a bite to eat. And here on the corner in which history was made, the Appel K and Kaiser Franz Josef Street, two destinies collided to steer history in its diabolic direction. Apparently um, uninformed of an itinerary revision so that the Archduke could visit one of his injured aides after the bomb missed, uh, Franz Ferdinand's driver made a right turn and uh, as originally planned and Princip turned from his lunch to see the car stalled right in front of him uh, and the rest is history, literally and uh, in, in colloquial speak. The only question it seems is why the half-eaten sandwich has not made it into a museum and obviously what kind of sandwich it was. It's not as whimsical as it sounds. One teacher offered his students extra credit if they could find out what kind of sandwich it was. And besides classrooms, the story has seeped into serious works of fiction and scholarship alike. One historian who recently published a concise history of Western civilization in 2011 by Roman and Littlefield publishers has the sandwich story. Nicholas Rankin's Oxford University Press published book on British cunning in, World War, in the two world ones uh, has the quotation, Princip is consoling himself with a sandwich when the Archduke drops in. The sandwich saga shows up in popular works on terrorism, military history, psychology of language, all published by respected academic presses, all since 2003. Quote, whoever made the sandwich that Gavrilo Princip ate on June 28, 1914 has a lot to answer for, reads the first sentence of an article in the Los Angeles Times by the science editor for Time magazine. Indeed they do. Uh, there are myths and there are mistakes, and the space that separates them is not always so evident. That there were no such things as sandwiches in Sarajevo in 1914, uh, and in any case, none of the eyewitnesses, not, uh, let alone the assassin himself, mentions anything about eating anything when uh, he, he shot the Archduke, does not make this a modest error. It's far too creative and quirky for that. Moreover, its spread has been so swift that school children in the United States and the UK have been reported running home to tell their parents, in essence, no sandwich, no shooting, no shooting, no world war. If the beauty of history is in the little things, that was the title of the LA Times piece I just quoted for, from, uh, then this is precisely the kind of story that captivates kids, gets them turned on to history. Positive thing, right? Um, uh, uh, yet uh, it takes grown-ups to grant legitimacy. And thanks to some exciting sleuth work by a journalist and history dabbler named Mike Dash, the source of the Stanwich story has, it seems, been solved. In 2003, a documentary, Days That Shook the World, widely available by the British production company Lion TV, in cooperation with the BBC, uh, viewers are informed at 5 minutes and 15 seconds that, quote, Gavrilo Princip has just eaten a sandwich and is now standing outside of Chiller's Delicatessen, when suddenly the Archduke's car turns on to Franz Joseph Street. Well, the director should have done his homework. Princip was standing there because that's exactly where the car was supposed to turn before the well-publicized itinerary was uh, changed following the uh, assassination attempt that, that, uh, did not, that failed earlier that day. One shown on the BBC in Britain and the US and circulated in schools via BBC DVD sales. However, the story took on a truth of its own to the point that today uh, this Mike Dash deems it, quote, in danger of becoming the accepted version of events in both uh, the US and the UK. 
How did this happen? The episode's director, Richard Bond, pleaded innocence. He said, maybe a bad translation. You know, he said, we used all these firsthand sources, newspapers. We were incredibly meticulous in our research. I would question why they needed to do firsthand research for a seven-minute do documentary uh, film when there's thousands of scholarly books and articles in the first place. Um, still, I don't think the director should bear all the blame. Ironically, and importantly for my overall argument in this presentation, professional scholars have indirectly contributed to the misinformation in many works that suggest it was sheer coincidence that brought the assassin face to face with Franz Ferdinand. According to uh, a Yale historian, a highly successful textbook, History of Modern Europe, Princip just happened to be only a few feet away from the Archduke's car. Hugh Strachan, one of the great World War I historians in his work, The First World War, says Princip was, quote, loitering on the corner, uh, having concluded that he and his colleagues failed when the car came by. In other words, they don't mention a sandwich, but it seems very coincidental that he was standing there. While there was a lot of happenstance and heedlessness that hot summer morning, it was no fluke that Princip had placed himself precisely at that spot. With a gun and grenade in his pocket, he was waiting for the auto. The only surprise was that it stopped. Uh, how the alleged haphazardness of uh, Princip's well-planned positioning has snuck into serious histories, who knows? It's impossible to say, other than that there's a lot of happenstance with the Sarajevo assassination. As for the sandwich, however, uh, Mike Dash uh, discovered a good possibility, and that is um, a Brazilian novel that was translated into English, very popular novel, so it was translated from Portuguese into English in 2001, two years before the film, in which a 12, it's a novel, a 12-fingered professional assassin is inserted to all the major events of world history, and on June 28, 1914, he is, uh, happens to be uh, waiting for the Archduke, and he sees Princip, and Princip is eating a sandwich. So from fiction to falsified history, the sandwich story, like the arrest photo, has wound its way into popular collective memory of the Sarajevo assassination. Nevertheless, even if Princip, despite all we know about his all-consuming commitment to kill the Archduke, had in fact turned his attention to a sandwich on the assumption that he had missed his heroic moment, the war that lunch allegedly launched would not begin for a full month. And in that long interval, there were other sandwiches, or let's call them small negligible incidents and actions that may have swerved history in a different direction, just as the early death of the Archduke, who was sick with tuberculosis uh, years earlier, would have. The sandwich may be completely contrived and irrelevant, but as a form of remembrance, it field feeds right into the extraordinary series of genuine happenstances that did take place that day in Sarajevo, the wrong turn being just simply the most well-known. And it's fact, it's feasible that the randomness of Sarajevo was what prompted the novelist to even think about inserting a sandwich in the first place. So the sandwich story, as specious as it is, satisfies our sense that the past is not so easily explicable, even by historians, and that seemingly unforeseen events can and do have enormous consequences. But the consequence of the numerous coincidences that combined in Sarajevo on June 28, 1914, was one dead archduke and his wife, not a world war and the restructuring of the world order. 
The memory of the sandwich may help us to appreciate something about contingency, but without the authority of history, we're likely to forget that human agency matters as well. So to conclude, uh, a quote by the scholar Elida Osman. We live in a world mediated by representations in the, forms of, in the form of texts and images, a fact that has inevitably affected, quote, both individual remembering and the work of the historian. Osman stresses this, is by, this by no means implies that today's professional historian has lost his or her authority over the past, especially, quote, when it comes to judging and correcting evidence, probing representational truth, etc. It does force us historians to accept that uh, he or she has lost the monopoly over defining and presenting the past. In today's media-driven world, in other words, historians must compete with any number of activists and artists, politicians and pundits, filmmakers, novelists, and museum curators in, quote, the common enterprise of reconstructing and shaping the past, end quote. It is then in this relativistic sense in which history and memory are not nearly as opposed as Pierre Nora portrayed them that it doesn't so much matter whether Princip was eating a sandwich or the man in the photo really isn't the Sarajevo assassin. Uh, that is, as long as we keep in mind that these flawed means of remembrance remind us of the flawed ways of humanity. Thanks.